Hello everyone, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I intend to cover in this audio, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-13. through 13. Our context is this, in the first chapter, Paul had been fighting heretics at Ephesus, or actually he was fighting them by proxy through his faithful son, Timothy, and he was encouraging Timothy in that fight, that heretics were Gnostic, legalist, Jewish legalist type heretics, and he encouraged Timothy, he said, Fan the flame, guard the gift, and follow the pattern I've set for you. Fan the flame of what was deposited in you and the gift that was in you. I assumed that the gift was his gift of either eldership to to lead the Ephesian church as an elder or to be an apostle. I'm not sure what Timothy was, an elder or apostle. But at any rate, Paul has been really encouraging him to not be timid, to do what he's supposed to do. So then we start in... Chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see here that Paul is not encouraging Timothy to be a one-man show. He expects Timothy to train other people under him, which is, of course, the only way the gospel can ever spread. Paul calls Timothy my child. Timothy was Paul's child in the gospel because of instructing Timothy, not converting him, as most of the commentators say. If there is a conversion, if Timothy did, if Paul did convert Timothy, it's not recorded anywhere. We see that Paul calls Timothy his child, not only in the second verse of the first chapter of 2 Timothy, but also in the second verse of the first chapter of 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1-2 says this, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace. 1 Timothy 1-2 says, To Timothy... My true child in the faith. Paul mentions about the stuff that Timothy had heard from Paul. What stuff would that? Well, that would be the apostolic teaching that Paul had received from Jesus in heaven. He had a, he was caught up into the third heaven once to have a vision he told us about. And of course, there was that famous vision he had on the road to Damascus. He had several others. Paul had revelatory knowledge. These were not just his opinions that Paul was asking to be spread to other faithful men who would teach them. This was the teaching of Christ. These were not just his opinions that Christians can choose or not choose according to their selfish, stupid opinions. These are the words of God. And so you want to disagree with Paul, then disagree with God, because you can't say that you're following God and not following Paul at the same time. Paul was very clear as he wrote his various epistles. He often said, follow my pattern, just like he did in the last chapter, like he did to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. He also did the same to the Thessalonians in one of the Thessalonian letters. Follow his pattern, the stuff that Paul has heard from heaven. He tells Timothy to teach others. Teachers should teach teachers, not to the exclusion of others who are not teachers, of course, but teachers should always find teachers who can pass it on, keep the gospel going. 2 Timothy 2, chapter 3 through 4. And by the way, that should be the, the idea that you should teach teachers. Teachers should teach teachers. This is something that's sometimes underemphasized. I think that teaching is an extremely important part of the ministry. We, of course, emphasize evangelism, and we should. Church planning, missionary stuff, we should. But you get people evangelized, you don't teach them anything. And you start churches, and you don't teach them anything. You don't have much. It's not going to last. And teaching, or at least Bible study and teaching in this country in America seems to me, in my humble opinion, to be pretty shallow. Or if it's not completely false, I just saw one, a great teacher, hundreds of, I say great, she's got hundreds of hits or thousands of hits and subscribers on YouTube. And she teaches that Jesus 
went down to hell in order to save people. And then when he did, he was no longer the son of God. He kind of jumped out of the Trinity because he became sin. It's the typical word of faith heresy. And I thought, you know, all the people listening to this schlop, and unfortunately, that's what we got out there. You could look up hyperpreterism, for example. Oh, boy, there's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of stuff out there that's just nonsense. So good teaching is extremely important. We need more of it. There's a lot of good teaching out there, too. I shouldn't say it's all bad, but it's when you factor in the fact that the, that the average Christian doesn't like to hear teaching. He's too busy interested in stuff that pumps him up and tells him how he's going to get a big car or fancy job or he's going to take care of all of his problems. And he doesn't look at what the whole plan of redemption is, the historical plan that Jesus, that God has in order to save mankind. It's very exciting when you actually get into it and you get past the Sunday school superficial level of teaching in the scriptures. All right, so now we go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Paul tells Timothy, share in suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now Paul is going to mention Three strenuous professions right here, one after the other. Soldier, athlete, and farmer. And every one of them involves work. As me and G. Krebs used to say on Dobie Gillis, work! We don't like work. And Paul is giving these three professions as something you don't like to show that a lot of times serving God involves unpleasant work. Christian work is strenuous. All three of these professions, soldier, athlete, and farmer, involved effort, patience, and suffering. I think if you're an athlete, you've just been running for 25 miles, you got one more mile to go to finish the marathon, that's not easy. These are the kind of metaphors that Paul used to talk about our discipleship of Jesus Christ. And the reason, of course, is all those early disciples had horrible situations. Very difficult what they were doing. Very difficult what Timothy had spent his life doing. But I bet he was happy. Same thing with Paul. Paul had all kinds of troubles. Arrested, thrown in jail, beaten with rods. Now he's abandoned, he's alone. People have left him while he's in prison. He's had a hard, hard life, but he didn't care because he knew who he was suffering. Paul says, be a good soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. That's because he's got to be on the base training and then he's got to go fight in a war. He didn't have, doesn't have time to take a job. Now, as Ellison, my Timothy commentator, says, there's nothing wrong with these per se. Of course not. There's nothing wrong with civilian pursuits, Paul would never say something that stupid. But Paul is saying that you can't take these civilian pursuits as the highest priority, whether it's looking for a wife, looking for a job, trying to get money and all the things that we do. Nothing wrong with them as long as you don't put that as your number one focus in life. And of course, that's one of the hardest things of the Christian life because the Bible's got plenty of stuff about being a good worker, providing for your own Got a lot of stuff about marrying the right person, about raising kids. All that stuff is good. I don't care what it is you get in, you get involved in. Even teaching the the Bible is good. Uh, being an elder in a church is good, or a pastor in a church. But anything that gets ahead of your relationship with, with Jesus is a civilian pursuit as far as being a soldier following Christ. Notice that Timothy, Paul says Timothy t- t- tells Timothy to share in suffering. In other words, it's not sharing the joy of winning the battle, but suffering. Maybe being a soldier, you got to have people get sh- shoot at you, perhaps kill you. I mean, I think any Christian could compare his level of commitment to being a soldier, fighting in a war, and come up a little bit short. Of course, Paul uses extreme examples here to really encourage us 
to be a disciple and do what it takes to follow Jesus. And don't just use him as a Sunday school crutch to help you get over the little problems you have in life. 2 Timothy 2, verses 5 through 7, Paul continues, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. An athlete is not crowned, let's assume it's a runner. He's disqualified if he doesn't compete according to the rules. Let's say he jumps the gun. Let's say he blocks another runner or whatever. He doesn't do things according to the rules of the game. He's not going to get his crown. Well, there are certain rules of the game if you want to be a disciple of Christ. You don't play the Christian game that way. You're going to lose the reward that you could have had. All right, moving from the athletic me metaphor to verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. This seems to say to me, the harder people work in their ministry, the greater the share of ministry rewards they are going to receive. And I suspect this carries over to the afterlife in heaven. More hard work for the gospel, more reward you're going to get. You're going to get the first share of the crops. You're going to get the first rewards of ministry. And I'll tell you, there's nothing greater, for example, if you lead somebody to the Lord or help somebody, whatever, in the, in the gospel. Compare that to the joy you get from your boss saying, good job. There's no comparison. No comparison at all. Verse 7, Paul tells Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Which I think is kind of interesting, because what Paul has told Timothy here is not all that complicated. Unless he's referring, of course, to the whole letter of Second Timothy, it's still not that complicated. It could be that Paul's trying to buck Timothy up because Timothy is facing a lot of opposition from these heretics, and it was beating him down. Second Timothy chapter two, verses eight through nine, Paul says, "Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound." Paul reminds. Timothy, what the gospel was all about. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's the essence of it right there. Now, this is interesting. Who rose him from the dead? Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It's in the passive, so we don't know the subject. But is it, if you do a little Bible study, we'll do a little mini excursus here, and, and we'll see that all three persons of the Trinity raised Jesus. God the Father raised Jesus, God the Son raised Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus. To show that, let's start with God the Father. First of all, right here in this verse, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Well, Ellison says that shows that God the Father raised Jesus. I don't think it necessarily does. It's not as clear. So let's look at some other scriptures that shows that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 2, 32, God has raised this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. Of this. Acts, that's probably Peter's Pentecostal sermon. He says, God has raised this Jesus. Therefore, God the Father's raised Jesus. Romans 6, 4, Paul says this to the Romans. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. By the glorious Father, Christ was raised from the dead. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. All right, so now we've got God the Father raising Jesus from the dead. Now, how about God the Son? And this is the interesting one. Jesus raises himself from the dead? Well, actually, yes. John 2:19. Jesus answered. This was to his critics who were giving him grief. Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about, of course, the temple of his body, which was raised in three days. And Jesus says, I will raise it up. He didn't say God the Father will raise it up. It would have been very easy for him to say that. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to raise it up. He's going to raise himself from the dead. John 10, verses 17 through 18. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Jesus may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. So 
Jesus raises himself from the dead. He raises up his dead body after three days, he teaches in the Gospel of John. Now, one might ask a question, how could Jesus raise himself since he was dead? How can a dead person raise himself? Well, you got to remember his spirit was in heaven. And so he's, 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 got, he's got a divine nature and he's got a human nature. Divine nature has existed from eternity. He looks down from heaven. He says, okay, body, rise up. All right, now we've got to establish that God the Father and God the Son raised Jesus from the dead. How about God the Holy Spirit? Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who was raised Jesus from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. All right, the, first, the last part of that verse says, he who raised Christ from the dead, that's the Father. But the first part says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Holy Spirit, capital S in my Holman Christian Study Bible, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you as a Christian, which ought to give you some encouragement as you go through the vicissitudes of life. So Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, of course, in his human lineage, his genealogy, he was of the house of David, that's standard, preached in my gospel. Preach means evangelized, if you will, or heralded, proclaimed my gospel for which I am suffering. Why is he suffering? Because he, Why is he bound with chains as a criminal? Because he's in, in Rome in his second imprisonment. He was probably under house arrest in the first imprisonment. Now in the second imprisonment, he's under chains, is what most scholars seem to say here. And the chain might be a chain that ran from Paul's arm to his guard's arm. It could be. If he was under house arrest, he probably was just free to move about his house with no trouble. But now at the end, he's, he's really, he's locked down. He's a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, and Paul proved it. He was witnessing to his jailers. He witnesses to the people in the Praetorian God, Guard who were there guarding the emperor and had something to do with Paul's prison, apparently because the word of God was gotten out, as we see in other passages of Scripture. So the gospel's not bound. They can, the Chinese government can shut down all the Trump's churches they want. The Chinese government can arrest as many Chinese Christians as they want, and the gospel's going to keep right on growing. They can't stop it. They're fools to think that they can. They can cause a lot of grief and a lot of suffering, but those Chinese Christians know how to suffer. And the church just keeps right on growing, fastest growing church in the history of the world, despite the opposition, or maybe they say because of the opposition. Now, when Paul tells Timothy Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the dead means dead. He was actually dead. He did not faint on the cross to be revived later, as a lot of heretics like to say. He was actually a dead man. Otherwise, the resurrection wouldn't mean too much. We go to 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is not bashful about using his life as an example for his young charge, Timothy. Paul has endured everything for the sake of the elect, so why can't Timothy? So he and Paul puts up with everything. Of course, what did he put up with? Being sleepless, being homeless, being without food, being shipwrecked, being in prison, being slandered cared before magistrates with trumped-up charges. He endured all that for the sake of the elect. That's us. That's Christians. That's what Paul did that for us. And he wants Timothy to do the same thing for the elect. And all the garbage that you ever put up with, remember, it's for your fellow brothers and sisters, and it's worth it. 
He does that so that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, that could refer to justification salvation, just getting born again. And, of course, then if you're doing everything for the sake of the elect, that means you're doing it before they're actually saved. In order to get the gospel out to them, they're elect, but they're not saved yet. Or it could be for the elect that's already saved and that you might and they, they might obtain the salvation, the deliverance of the rewards of their Christian life, the end of their Christian life, even though they've already gotten saved in a justified sense, in a sanctified sense they hadn't gotten there yet. Whatever, it doesn't make any difference. The point is, is that's what we're doing all this for, is for other Christians. We need to remember that when we get upset with our fellow brothers and sisters, which is real easy to do, as you know, I'm sure. What's that old saying? Oh, it'll be a great thing to live with God in glory, but with the saints on earth. Well, that's a different story. Paul never complained too much about his fellow believers. He calls them the elect, the chosen of God, and then he's suffering for them. Here's a good quote from Adam Clark, talking about the things that Paul had to endure. Quote, it is impossible to read this chapter over without feeling deeply interested for this most noble and amiable of men, talking about Paul. To what trials did God expose him? His life was a life of perils and tribulations. His labors were superabundant, and his success all but incredible. Wherever he went, he left a track of light and life behind him. To him, as the grand instrument of God, the Gentiles, the whole habitable world, owe their salvation. Yet see him in his old age, neglected by his friends, apparently forsaken of God, and abandoned to the hands of ruthless men, in prison and in chains, triumphing over sufferings and death, perfectly unshaken, unstumbled with the evils with which he is obliged to contend, having the fullest persuasion of the truth of the doctrines which he had preached, and the strongest and most encouraging anticipation of the glory that was about to be revealed. He felt no evil, and he feared none. Sin had lost its power, and death its sting, the grave its victory, and hell its horrors. He had the happiness which heathenism spoke of, but could not attain because it knew not the great source whence it must proceed. This God he knew, feared, loved, obeyed, and was happy. Can't beat that. Second Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, Paul continues, for, and here's the saying, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, this is one of the five trustworthy sayings that are listed in the pastoral epistles. As there's three of them in 1 Timothy, and there's one in Titus, and this is a fifth one right here. It's apparently a quote from a creed or a hymn that Christians were saying or singing back then. That's what most people say. Adam Clark denies that. He said it's not really a saying. It's a true doctrine. The Greek is pistos ha logos, which is the faithful word. In other words, the word is faithful if we would die with him. It's a true word. If this is true doctrine. Well, whatever. It doesn't matter to me whether it's a creed or not or whether it's just a true doctrine that Paul's telling them. It's something we ought to pay attention to. Now, Paul says, if we have died with him, when was that? When you died at your conversion, at your regeneration. Now, what part of died do we not understand? Why do people say the old man's still alive, fighting with a new man? That is poppycock, and I, I say that strongly because it doesn't matter what theological persuasion that a teacher is, he'll say this at some time, the old man's still alive, fighting with a new man. Now, there's a few people out there that will state the obvious that the old man is dead. I mean, Paul, the apostle said it right here. If we have died, D-I-E-D, with him, what does died mean? It means your old man is dead. Read Romans 6. 
You know, in Romans 6, the old man died, and that's how, that was the basis for baptism in water, because the old man has died. He's buried in the waters of baptism. So if we have died with him, we will also live with him. How do we live with him? When the new man comes to resurrected life. Now, Paul says in verse 12, if we endure, we also reign with him. Now, let me give you some, this is what a commentator I use, and he's been very good. I've used him a lot, named Ellison, not Ellicott, but Ellison. I don't know who Ellison is. I just found him on the internet, but I thought he was pretty good. But he keeps saying things like this, like right here. He sees the if, and he says this is a first-class conditional, which it is. And then he says this means that Paul assumes that believers will persevere. In other words, the idea is, if we endure, and it is a fact that we shall endure. That is not what a first-class conditional says. A first-class conditional says we're going to assume for the sake of argument that it's true, but it might not be true. He's not saying that we will endure. He's saying if we endure for the sake of argument, let's just, let's just, let's just posit that we endure. Well, if we do do that, we will reign with him. You say, well, that doesn't make that big a difference. Well, it does, actually. Sometimes, a lot of times it doesn't, but sometimes it does. Now, let me give you an example of a first-class conditional that is not, the if is not actually true. 1 Corinthians 15:19. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Now, that's a first-class conditional. Does that mean that we have actually put our hope in Christ for this life only and not for the afterlife? Well, of course not. So, you see the the con- the condition which is put forth is only assumed to be true for the sake of argument, but Paul does not consider it to be actually true. So all of these in this verse 12 are first-class conditional. So he's saying, for the sake of argument, listen to me. If we endure, we're going to reign with him. But if we deny him, in other words, it's if just for the sake of argument, if we deny him, he's going to deny us. That doesn't mean we're actually going to deny him, or that Paul thought that we were actually going to deny him. It's just saying, if, for the sake of argument, it's a logical possibility that we deny him. Just Let's just assume that for the sake of argument. I don't believe that's actually going to happen, but let's assume it. He also will deny us. So you see, it does make a big difference here. It makes a difference because of the problem of losing your salvation, because I can hear an Armenian reading this and saying, well, now... If we deny him after we're born again, he could deny us and deny us salvation. And therefore, we could lose our salvation by denying Jesus. Uh-uh. Can't do that. Well, let's refute an Armenian interpretation of this verse right now. First of all, as I said, if it's a first-class hypothetical, then the if, the condition, is assumed merely for the sake of argument. But doesn't mean that the speaker actually meant it to be true. So he says, if you deny Jesus, that doesn't mean that... Paul thought that the Christians were actually going to deny Jesus. But even better than that, in my opinion, is that where does it say that you're going to lose your salvation if you deny Jesus? Jesus' denial might not be a denial of salvation, but a denial of something else, such as your peace, your deliverance, your victory, your fellowship, things in this life. You could lose all of that, but still not lose your salvation. I'll give you a classic example, Peter. Peter denied Christ. He lost his peace, but he didn't lose his salvation. Mark fourteen seventy two. immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and cried and wept. Now, let me ask you something. Does the Bible contradict itself? No, of course it does not. Peter denied Christ. He didn't lose his salvation, obviously. So this verse right here cannot mean that if we deny Jesus, let's just assume we do, that he will deny us our salvation. No, he's not going to be happy about it. Bad things are going to happen. Lots of bad things. 
and you're probably going to be eaten up with guilt. But he's not going. You're not going to lose your salvation. I remember reading years ago, years ago, a book by Richard Warmbrand, the guy that wrote Torture for Christ, who spent most of his life in a Romanian prison camp of much of his life in horrible, horrible conditions. And he said he would hear the prisoners being tortured, and they were Christians. And a lot of them refused to bend and said, no, I'm not going to deny Christ. He said, but every now and then one of them would. And he would come back and he would be so humiliated and ashamed and thought Jesus had left him. And all those other prisoners who had experienced the same torture that the one who denied the faith had, those prisoners, they didn't look at him and say, you have denied the faith and Jesus is going to deny you. They went over there and they hugged him and says, You're, it's all right, it's all right. He still loves you. Come on back to him. Pray to him. You're going to be all right. I never forgot that. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just willy-nilly deny Jesus and think there's not going to be any consequences. Yeah, there are going to be consequences. Paul was trying to buck up Timothy in the midst of extreme persecution, remember. This was an age of persecution, torture, and death, as Ellison puts it. This was an age when, by golly, you did suffer for the gospel. Paul's not encouraging people to deny the faith under torture. But what I'm saying, I don't think he's threatening them with their loss of salvation if they end up denying the faith. And, of course, most people deny the faith not because they're under torture. It's because they're selfish, conceited, scumbags, individualists who prefer to be their own God rather than have God rule over them. Let's face it, that's the way most people are in this world. That's another thing we could say that if we deny him, it sounds like Paul's talking about Christians, and I think he is, but it, it could be he's talking about if we people, human beings, endure, we will reign with him, assuming we're Christians, and if we people deny him, he will deny us. He's talking about non-saved people denying Jesus, in which case, obviously, he's going to deny their salvation. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that you can't use this verse, or you shouldn't use this verse to try to prove that we can lose our salvation. Once a son, always a son. My son cannot deny his my fatherhood and his sonship because it's in the genes and folks once you get born again by the holy spirit it's in your genes and that means you can't live up it might mean that you don't live up to the to what you have been born to but you still have the holy spirit in your makeup paul says in verse 13 if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself that means god is faithful to himself to his gospel and if, again, this is assuming for the sake of argument, if it turns out that all every Christian is faithless, well, Jesus is still faithful. He hasn't changed his message. He can't deny himself. He can't deny why he came to the earth. He can't deny why he shed his blood on the cross to forgive all those who believe in him eternal life. He can't deny that. That's happened. So what Paul is saying is, stay faithful, Timothy, because even if you don't stay faithful, Jesus is still true. That's how strong he is. He doesn't stop being true and faithful Faithful to whom? Faithful to his father, faithful to his message, faithful to his gospel, faithful to himself. He's not going to stop being that. So don't deny him. Hang in there. This is a word of encouragement, remember, to Timothy. Now Paul says in verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. When do we reign? When we are converted? Or does it mean in the eternal state, in the final state at the end of time in heaven when we're glorified? Well, we do reign with Christ when we're converted, when we're born again. But here it says, if we endure, we will reign with him. Now, of course, again, that sounds like, well, that means if we don't endure, we won't reign. And that means he'll throw us out of heaven and we'll lose our salvation. But no, it means if you want to be a conquering Christian, a victorious Christian, you've got to endure. We will also reign with him in this life, in my humble opinion, is what it means. If we endure, if we, if we continue with 
endurance and patience and long-suffering, we're going to get a crown of life right here on this earth. We're going to reign with Jesus. This idea about confessing Jesus before men, Jesus himself talked about it in the Gospels, Luke 9, 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. And there again, it was not people being ashamed of Jesus because of torture. It's just because they just didn't want to believe. Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And again, I think it's clear that Jesus is talking about the people who were following him who just didn't want to believe in him. There were thousands of those. How many of the people in the Gospels that rejected Jesus' message, how many of them had a gun pointed to their head? All those people that yelled, crucify him, crucify him, how many of them were being tortured? They did this of their own voluntary free will. So I think that this hymn or creed is basically talking about what Jesus was talking about. People who deny the truth, not because they're being tortured, but just because they don't want to follow Jesus. And what does that say about people who say, well, everybody's going to go to heaven like everybody in America seems to think? No, you deny Jesus, you ain't getting in, folks. Simple as that. Not through any fault of his, but your fault because you're too busy living your own life rather than believing in Jesus. Now let's go over some more of this idea about being faithless. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now here, Ellison shows his lack of knowledge of Greeks, Greek again. He says this phrase is a first-class conditional, which assumes the antecedent to be true. No, it does not. It assumes for the sake of argument that the antecedent is true. Paul is not saying that it, it is the case that we are going to be faithless. He's not saying that. Paul, in fact, Ellison notices the problem. He says, well, one would expect a third-class conditional which shows potential action. that uses subjunctive tense in a third-class conditional, if I remember correctly, and that means might. In other words, if it, is, if it might be true that we are faithless, third-class conditional. And Ellison said, well, that's what it ought to be. Well, he doesn't understand the Greek. It, that's exactly what it does mean. He says, if for the sake of argument we're faithless, and I'm not saying we're going to be or not going to be, I'm just putting this up there as a rhetorical method to show you that even if it were possible that all of us would remain faithful, Jesus would remain Jesus would remain faithful. Now what does it mean if we're faithless or for the sake of argument we might be faithless faithful? Well here's some possibilities faltering under persecution. And by the way, all of these ways of being or methods of being faithless do not mean that we lose our salvation. They're just things that Christians can do, unfortunately. We could be faithless by faltering under persecution. We could quit assembling together, not confessing Christ. We could quit witnessing. We could quit following. We could start following false teachers. We could start living an ungodly lifestyle. We could not be a Christian and not believe in Christ at all. Then God will remain faithful to punish those. That was John Gill's solution. I've already mentioned that as a possibility. And, of course, the Arminian Clark says, those who deny the faith apostatize and lose their salvation, which I don't believe for one second. You know, we can look at this idea of faithfulness and look at Israel as an example. Israel was obviously not faithful to God, but God was faithful to them because his covenant to Abraham was unconditional. It was going to happen. They sinned and were punished, but they were never destroyed. God accomplished his purposes through them, through the Abrahamic covenant, which eventuated into the church. So if God can do that and still punish faithfulness, he can do that to us. He can punish us big time. People think that, oh, well, I'm saved. I can just do what I want. And nothing's going to happen to me. Have you ever experienced the chastising hand of God? You wouldn't say something that stupid. God can make you perfectly miserable on this earth because of your sin. You know, I've just had a dear Chinese convert 
who got herself in the fetal position, she quit praying. She quit going to church. She quit reading her Bible. She was only talking to three people, her parents, her boyfriend, who was not saved, and me. And because she was upset because her pastor had decided that he had the hots for another Chinese woman and was talking about committing adultery on his wife. Well, that's pretty upsetting. And she'd gotten real close to this pastor. He'd done her a lot of good. He had kind of discipled her. And so, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. You know, I talked to her every now and then, try to buck her up, try to get get her back on the path. And then finally, when she started getting on the path, she started praying again. And she, and she told me all this. And in the course of the conversation, she said, you know, I, I haven't been praying. She, in fact, she she called me. Could, could we have a Bible study? This on, over, She's in a different city over the Internet. Could we have a Bible study? <laughs> so, you know, you could be faithless for a time. I mean, we've got to not think that God's going to kick us into hell because we're faithless sometimes. Because all of us are in some way or another are not faithful. Let's face it. Human, humanity is extremely flawed. Well, with that encouraging remark, we are finished now with Second Timothy Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. In our next audio, we'll look at the end of chapter 2 in 2 Timothy, and we will see how Paul encourages Timothy to be a worker approved by God. Hope you stay tuned for that audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.